0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm uh, Nicole Biggert and I'm Dean of the Graduate School of Management and I'm very happy to welcome you here to our San Ramon Bishop Ranch East Bay facility, um, uh, our newest facility and uh, home of our newest uh, MBA program so i'm just uh, i 'm delighted to, to see you all before I want uh, uh, to before I introduce our speaker, I want to share some some great in, great news that we received yesterday if you haven 't already heard for the 14th consecutive year uh, we were ranked in the top 50 business cr- uh, school programs by u s News and World Report and I just want to give you some context for why that 's meaningful uh, there are there are thousands of business programs there are in the united states uh, somewhere between 550 and 600 accredited accredited business schools in the us so that's sort of the universe of of uh, of schools that that we see as our peers and so to be in the top 50 you know you're you're in the top 8 or 9% of accredited business schools and to have been consistently in that group for 14 years as is a, is a real mark of the recognition of the quality of the program that we have there are six uc business schools and three are are, are in that group uh, uc berkeley ucla and uc davis and so we we're very proud that such a small and such a young school are recognized for the, for the quality of of its students its faculty and, and its program so we are – can you tell I'm thrilled? <laughs> Great. Yeah. And, and I will say that we we have achieved that by really focusing on the fundamentals, and uh, fundamentals in business are, are the hot topic now, but we, we really – we have not – Put a lot of bells and whistles on our program. We we put our money into our students, into our faculty, and uh, to our programs, not into our buildings. And if you've seen our Davis facility, you know that's true. That we're getting a new building, so we uh, we're definitely the the startup that started and stayed in the garage for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we always had to say t- we're really good. Just don't look at the walls, you know. <laughs> um, we're uh, uh, and I think I'll move on and tell you about our our uh, our speaker today, uh, who is uh, who is um, someone I heard speak last summer at our Green Technology Entrepreneurship Academy. It's a one-week intensive program for scientists uh, who we are trying to. Teach them the language in the in the logic of business and and make a real difference in the in their science um, so that they could actually get it out the door into the business community either by partnering with a business person or even in some cases becoming business people themselves but Susan was one of the uh, one of the business people who taught that curriculum and she was so good I just wanted her to come down and and uh, share with another part of our community what she does so well so um, Susan is a partner in the corporate group of Morrison Forster's uh, San Francisco uh, Law Office. I can say MOFO better. Uh, she is the co-chair of the Venture Capital Emerging Companies Group and the Clean Tech Group for the firm worldwide. She's also the co-chair of the Green Technology and Climate Change Committee of the American Bar Association, uh, section of science and technology law. So she's really at the intersection of... of uh, really interesting uh, uh, policy uh, discussions. She has extensive experience uh, st- representing startups uh, to late stage uh, private companies primarily in the clean tech and uh, sustainable business sectors. She provides corporate finance advice in connection with mergers, acquisitions, asset purchases and uh, sales, reorganizations, uh, joint ventures, equity and debt, all those sorts of uh, transactional based uh, uh, legal activities that um, that young companies uh, and not so young companies need. Her Cleantech client list includes Altra Biofuels, Agile Waves, Arcadia, Biosignal, Carbon Networks, DripTech, Electrotherm, Photon, Energy Systems, micromitis, and Veristeel. And Midas is that young, group of young undergraduate Davis students that we all met at the same time last summer who had this great idea, and you've taken them to, uh, <laughs> to the next step. Uh, her sustainable and social enterprise uh, clients include Micro Energy Credit Corporation, uh, Restida. Can I? They say that right? Restida, yeah. Revolution Foods, and Small Potatoes Urban Delivery. What a great name! <laughs> <Fun>. <laughs> Uh, Her venture fund clients include uh, Darwin Venture Fund of Funds, Pacific Community Ventures, and RSF Social Finance. And she also represents nonprofits involved with sustainability and corporate social responsibility. She advises boards, committees, CEOs on corporate governance and social responsibility issues. She's a faculty member and teaches on issues of sustainability and corporate governance at both the Stanford uh, Directors College and the Northwestern Corporate Counsel Institute. She uh, received her undergraduate degree in political economy from Williams College and earned her JD and LLM degrees from Duke University School of Law. Uh, she started working as an a, uh, attorney in New York for three years, and uh, joined MoFo as an associate in 1997, and became a partner in 2001. So please uh, uh, help me in welcoming Susan McCormick.
1: I, they they mic me up. Um, thank you, Dean Bigert. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for that full introduction. I feel like I don't have to say anything more. You already know all about me, and people who had lunch with me learned even more. Um, as Dean Biggert mentioned, I'm a partner at Morrison & Forster, which is a large international law firm. We've got about 1,100 lawyers. Um, and we started a number of years ago with about 10 people focused on sustainability and clean tech. And now I'm proud to say we have about 135 and that's not an artificial number. Those are not people who are interested in green. Those are not people who are committed to recycling. Those are people who are actually working on deals and clients and transactions in the clean tech and sustainable space. Um, So it's been kind of an exciting couple years. Um, I'll give you just a couple minutes of the background that doesn't sort of show on my resume. Um, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. Um, So Davidson, Davidson College basketball, yes. And um, I I left the South to go to Williams. I then went to China for a number of years and I really thought early in my career I was going to work with companies doing business in China. Um, One of my dad's friends who was a professor sat me down and said "Um, that's great you really know nothing about anything, why don't you actually go to a law firm and learn something practical. And so I went to New York, I went to a big firm and I started learning how to do transactions. And I really enjoyed them. Um, I was an economics major. I I liked putting deals together. I liked working with company clients. Um, And I did that for a number of years on the the East Coast and then the West Coast. Um, Moved out to California in 97 for a boy. Um, And then around 2000, 2001, a whole bunch of factors sort of happened both personally and professionally. Um, And one of the things, especially if I'm talking to some students, I like to say is, you know, my my whole focus on clean tech probably started with the 2001 recession. um, And then I got pregnant. And the confluence of those two things meant that I had sort of grown up at the firm and become partner early, doing a lot of big deals and big big transactions for the big corporate boys, um, Rob Townsend and others, who work at my firm, and really had never taken the time to step back and explore who I was, where my values were and where I wanted to practice and really what I wanted to do. Um, and so the 2000, 2001 recession meant that all of a sudden I wasn't spending you know 20 hours a day doing huge transactions. I had time to stop and think. Um, my husband started working as a steward um, in the Presidio National Park and started bringing home all of these interesting people. Um, and I started meeting them sort of both personally and professionally. And so my career started actually mainly on the pro bono basis, working with Corporate, socially responsible, and sustainable companies. There is a great organization in the South Bay that, if you haven't heard of it, it's called Pacific Community Ventures. Um, and they were the first in California double bottom line fund. They now have almost $100 million under management, and they only invest in equity in companies that hire almost exclusively or exclusively in low income areas of the state. They started here in the Bay Area, they've now expanded to all of California. And the woman who put it together used to be the CFO of our firm. And so, about this time, I was trying to figure out who I wanted to be when I grew up. She came and said, I want to set this thing up pro bono, and I got very excited. So, that was one of my first clients in this space. Business for Social Responsibility, um, the guy who heads BSR, and BSR, if you don't know, is a large nonprofit right now whose main competitor, interestingly, in this space is McKinsey. And it tells you how sort of this nonprofit, feel good, save the world movement has become so incredibly mainstream, and it's happened overnight. Because I'll tell you, I met with McKinsey two years ago, and they didn't have a clean tech CSR or sustainability group, and now they do, and it's huge, and it's, it's, it's a machine that is, that is you know, driving a lot of revenue, even in this market. Um, and so BSR's associate used to be at MoFo. He convinced me, and BSR really consults with the Fortune 1000, really helps integrate corporate social responsibility and sustainability into their business operations. And so that's, that's how I started... And as I like to say, it's better to be lucky than smart. Um, I had my second baby in 2006. I came back, and all of a sudden, there was a huge market. And all of these small companies and socially responsible and sustainable companies, kind of overnight, were making a lot of money, referring me to other companies. that were getting into what is now referred to as the cleantech space. Um, And to give you some idea, I'll talk about the venture numbers a little bit because what I'm going to be focusing on today are really what the state of the cleantech market right now and sustainability um, and some of the opportunities and the challenges that we're facing sort of right now, April 2009. Um, But to give you some idea, even even in in this market, cleantech in terms of technology and revenue growth, is still growing about 30% this year. And I see it at our firm. Our firm, I'm, I'm meeting with management next week, so I've looked at the numbers very carefully. Um, we actually, revenues for our group of now 135 lawyers are 107% up first quarter of 2009 versus 2008. And I'll tell you, we, you know each year, we've been experiencing that kind of growth rate. And that just reflects the fact that even in this economy, there are a lot of companies, large and small, that are doing a lot of very, very exciting things in the clean tech. Space. So I'm going to cover a couple, um, a couple areas today and then I'll, I'll break at any point if people want to ask me questions. Um, but I'm going to talk about really what I see as the four primary drivers for clean tech today. This is clean tech again, April 2009. It would have been different six months ago. It was different last summer um, when I spoke and I really focused on carbon. I'm going to talk about really what's hot in the clean tech sector today. I'm going to talk about current funding sources, because, again, that's very different today than it was six months ago, a year ago, or even two years ago. Um, And I'm really going to focus a little bit at the end on the international scope uh, of cleantech, because there's a gentleman I was having lunch with who was talking about sort of how far behind we are in the United States and even in California. And one of the things, specifically when I'm in the Valley, that I like to start when I explain what what I think cleantech is, is by saying this is not a Valley play. It is, it's, there's a lot of venture investment, there's a lot of excitement about it in the valley, but it is certainly not a valley play, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, So starting, how do I, how, how does one define clean tech? And before I do that, how many of the people here are actively involved in the clean tech sector through their professional or any other way? So a handful, a handful of you. How many of you care about the clean tech sector? <laughs> uh, obviously, all of you. Um, well, what, what I'd like to do, I thought that might be the case. Um, I thought I would just sort of take a step back and explain when I talk about clean tech, and I think when a lot of people talk about clean tech, kind of what we mean, um, because I think a lot of people think clean tech and they, they immediately think renewable energy. And I think what we've done at the firm, and they finally told me I had to stop um, so it can go up on the website, um, is sort of divided Cleantech. And we actually have 17 distinct sub-industry areas of Cleantech. And each one of those industry areas is very different, has very different needs in terms of financial needs, has very different needs in terms of technological needs, and has very different legal needs. So it's kind of important to define them. Uh, we start with the obvious ones. We distinguish between renewable energy and alternative energy. Renewable being renewable, things that don't, you don't use up, they don't go away, things like solar and wind. Alternative, we throw into the alternative bucket biofuels, fuel cell batteries, waste to energy, nuclear, which is often, often debated, but we put it in that category, and, and sort of clean conventional energy. Uh, we have energy efficiency that we distinguish from energy intelligence, um, which i 'll go into a little bit later when I talk about the stimulus package. Um, we have a whole bunch of, of sub industries around carbon because there 's carbon management in terms of tracking, then there 's carbon sequestration also, also known as carbon capture and storage then there 's also a growing market here um, that 's already a robust market overseas, um, particularly for Kyoto country, companies uh, countries in, in trading, carbon trading, and so all of those are distinct categories. Water is its own category. Um, that is becoming increasingly important. We've got green building, green marketing, um, biological solutions like biomimicry, which is my personal favorite. I won't cover that today, but if anybody wants to talk to me about biomimicry, I, I think it's people like T. Boone Pickens provide the problem, and I think people like Janine Benias and biomimicry have the solution, and it's just very exciting. I also think that places like UC Davis that have such an emphasis on, on plant and natural life have a real advantage in the clean tech space. So all of that kind of is is what we consider within the kind of the cleantech realm. Um, And the cleantech term really came into more common usage, as far as I can tell, around 2002. And because I've heard from several people who were there, there was actually a meeting um, in 2002 uh, with some of the big institutional funders, CalPERS and Calsters, and a, a, a several, I won't say a bunch, several venture firms where it was decided that the institutional investors would provide money to seven funds to specifically invest in the renewable energy sector. Um, And there were two groups at the same time, both claim ownership of the name, who actually worked with this sort of group of institutional investors and and venture capitalists and kind of came up with this new name. It really was a rebranding, cleantech. It was what they thought would be palatable to sort of resell. I'll tell you, a lot of technologies and ideas that have been around for a long period of time. Um, and so when people, clean tech is new, it's different. It's really not. And in, in my mind, and I think a lot of people's minds, it is rebranding of sustainability. Um, and at least as I look at it, sustainability started back in the 1960s with a book called by Rachel Carson called Silent Spring. Really the first time people in, uh, started looking at the impacts and the effects of mankind on the human environment. Um, there were a lot of writers that then came in the 70s and 80s that wrote uh, my favorite um, is actually Paul Hawken, whose book Ecology of Commerce is one of the things that started me on this on this path. Um, and then there was a lot of interest, particularly at the United Nations level. Um, less interest on a uh, country-specific level, but at the United Nations level. You had the, In 1987, they came up with a report on the environment and development. Then you had a series of the Earth Summits that you all have heard about. Um, really, in the United States, it took a confluence, just like cleantech today, and I'll go through the factors that have led to it, a confluence of factors. It was everything from, you know, Al Gore going around and talking about it, inconvenient truth to the Hurricane Katrina, you know, to oil prices, to a whole bunch of factors that really raise climate change in sort of the, the consciousness of, of the American public. And one of the reasons we were, we, were, we were talking briefly at lunch is just we have not been as resource constrained in this country as a lot of our peers so when i talk about the go to the international uh, the international perspective you know when you look at israel israel has a lack of water and a whole lot of sun. So they have been dealing with some of these infrastructure and energy issues and developing some of these technologies for decades before we have. In fact, it was a company called LUZ out of Israel that developed the first solar thermal technology, which is now running. I don't know if you know, there are actually solar thermal plants up and operating that are owned by First Flor- so Florida Power and Light. Sorry, thank you. Um, and so, I mean, all of that, came, you know, was technology based in the 70s that is now obviously being expanded and improved a lot for the technologies today. Um, so I really look at sustainability as, as using the UN's definition, which is, which is meeting today's generation's need without sort of too large of a discount rate against first or any discount rate against first future generations. And a lot of people use sustainability and clean tech um, interchangeably. Um, and in my mind, that, I mean, that's fine. Um, I would say all clean tech is probably part of sustainability, whereas all sustainability is not necessarily part of clean tech. But, again, I I don't think the terms are as important as the fact that it has grown. It has grown on the private company level and with all of this VC capital. It's also grown um, with the Fortune 1000 and the large corporations. And The one thing I wanted to just point out is it's, it's, Not just, when we talk about sustainability and clean tech, it's not just about all the new technologies. It's really about kind of what companies are doing both internally and externally. So internally, it has become part of the CSR, this corporate social responsibility language that corporations are talking about. And sort of the smart ones are really embedding as part of their operations, emphasis on employees, the natural environment. And the communities and and the natural environment being being the focus for sustainability, and then a lot of larger corporations are also either revamping their existing lines or coming up with whole new lines. Um, the example is is Honeywell right now. Can anybody guess what percentage of Honeywell's products they say are are intended to to basically to uh, intended to be in the clean tech space or intended to deal with issues of carbon? waste, and energy. What percentage? 55. So they right now are saying 55% of their product line. And let me tell you, Honeywell has huge and very, very diverse. So you're talking about everything from things that go into planes to, you know, I don't know if that's a Honeywell thermostat. But, I mean, you're talking about a very, very wide bunch of products. It is that ingrained. And so it's interesting when you know, you're thinking about the cool little solar startup in Palo Alto, and that's great, but it's also Honeywell. Um, it is it is across the map, and that's one of the reasons that it hasn't been as affected by the current economic crisis. Um, it's also I was going to comment on on the the, the university and Davis's uh, business school. Um, I wanted to see how Dave, where Davis was sort of going in all of this. Um, And one of the things that I noted is you have 33 baseline credits. And in green building, that means in connection with your new buildings, you have more credits. You have more um, emphasis on energy efficiency measures than any other UC campus, which is just huge. And you also seem to be attracting a lot of money in connection with your Energy Institute, your Energy Efficiency Center. Um, You just got $3 million in the last week um, for the Commission for Renewable Energy. Um, And I also read about Chevron Corporation giving you $25 million um, for renewable transportation fuels. And so um, UC Davis, I I see as an emerging leader in this space, just alongside Berkeley and Stanford, who are also doing some interesting things. Um, So what what are the primary drivers behind cleantech? And I really think looking at the drivers explains why there's a little less economic activity in cleantech, but not a lot even now. Um, in 2009. And the four are climate change, economic forces, regulation, which is key, and intellectual property. And I'll just spend a couple minutes going through each of those. Um, Climate change, the debate started about 50 years ago. Um, 1994, you had the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which came out. That eventually led to Kyoto about 10 years later. And in 2005, you had the Kyoto Protocol, which really... Um, required companies, the Annex I countries, as they are called, to um, affect carbon regulation. And so when you look at why Europe and why Asia, parts of Asia, and parts of all, all other parts of the world are so much far, uh, further ahead, particularly on carbon issues, is they've been capped. They may have gotten the caps wrong in some cases, but they've been capped for a much longer period of time. So since 2005, 2006, they've been experimenting with caps. In a lot of cases, like in Europe with the EU ETS, They've been experimenting with cap and trade, and sort of really figuring out what will work and what can work to address climate change and bring bring down greenhouse gas emissions. Um, As I mentioned, 2005 is really when I start seeing I started seeing more of the debate being mainstream in the United States. As an aside, um, I took I have two very young sons who are now two and a half and five and a half, and. I was crazy enough after my younger son was born to think I could go to England on an 11-hour flight and that everything would be fine and I would relax and sit and you know, have my cocktail on the way over. <laughs> And we, we got over there, and I had also been working really hard up to the trip, and I hadn't focused on the fact that in the summer of 2007, there were huge floods in England. Did any you, do any of you remember that? And they actually, there was no water in the Midlands. So I got there with my young family, and we were actually staying in this nice little cottage in the Cotswolds in England, and we were going down to a World War II bowser to get water, and it was, like <laughs> and then you know my in-laws and people are still. You can hear it. People kind of get climate change, but they still don't completely get it. And it, you know, it was it was just crazy to me. I'm going down to a World War II bowser. How much clearer can it get? There's some force that is beyond, and you can you know we can all argue about the factors, but there's some force, and there's going to be a lot of technology that develops as a result of that. Um, and it's, that's where I really focus is then looking at from my perspective as a corporate lawyer, where are the transactions? Where's the technology developing? Well As soon as you have regulation, every company has to measure carbon, and once they measure carbon, they're going to end up with an asset or a liability for which, even if we have cap and train regulation, next year, there will be no accounting standard. Just think securities litigation because it 's going to be huge because everybody's going to have to restate but that 's sort of an aside um, so everybody 's going to have to verify everybody 's sorry everybody 's going to have to measure it, which means you need whole new systems to be able to accurately or within some, you know, degree of accuracy, measure the carbon output. You're going to have to then have to report it. You're going to end up with, um, you know, with with sometimes with an, a credit or an offset that you can, or an allowance that you can trade. And so then there are all these trading systems. So there's been a lot. There's been a lot of technology, and I kind of watch it even from my my, you know, my office in San Francisco. You know, where there were three carbon footprinting companies two years ago. Now they're 200. Um, It is fascinating to me because, again, I go back to UC Davis and your core strengths. You have to really have some people who have serious science and technology degrees. You need engineers in there really figuring all this kind of stuff out. And then it's going to have to be verified. Right now, the EPA, as of last week, said they were going to be doing all of the verification, which I just don't think is possible, but it's also fascinating. But around this, you just have a lot of new technology because Eventually, I mean, you're starting with the heavy emitters, but eventually every company is going to have to measure. And a lot of companies are going to want to measure because they're going to end up with some sort of, some sort of you know, unit, a commodity that they can trade. And then again, from, I'm a corporate securities lawyer. I go back to that. You trade it, you bundle it, it starts looking like a derivative. Then you have a lot of, sec- very, for me, very interesting securities issues. But I'm, I digress. So climate change was sort of number one in sort of triggering all of this interest in in, in clean tech in the United States. Economic forces are another one that sort of goes hand in hand. First, you've got mispricing of natural resources that any of you, if you've taken sort of any any, uh, environmental classes or economics classes, um, you've got, I mean, the two easy ones to talk about are energy and water. Um, Can anybody guess how badly water is mispriced currently? By what percentage? between three and four hundred percent. So the cost of producing the water that you all are drinking in the non-sustainable bottles. Um, let's, take, let's, just take, let's take the bottles out of it. Um, I, I have one here somewhere. Uh, let's take the bottles out of it because that's a completely separate debate. It's the cost of the water. It's the infrastructure that is necessary to produce that water. This is separate from all the water issues in California. It is just, it, none of it is factored in. And because it's not factored in, we have developed, and I'm a, I'm a free market girl. I believe in markets. And, but the market has mispriced water, and, and the government has helped by subsidizing that mispricing so that you have whole industries, and particularly the agricultural industry, that are way over. They haven't had to factor in. They haven't had to think about how to develop their crops in a way that's sustainable. They're using way, way too much water in a way that's not sustainable. Again, technology, that's going to change. That's triggering a lot of people are recognizing it. People are starting to talk about and think about and affect water shadowing just like they were a couple years ago with carbon shadowing, looking at your, the water used not just by your company but down the supply chain, which has been very interesting. I'm starting to hear people talk about water markets in the same way a couple years ago. They were talking about creation of carbon markets, figuring out mechanisms to deal with this mispricing. Um, energy is another big one. It is... It is um, well, first of all, the first Model T was not, was not fueled by um, fossil fuels. It was fueled by uh, sugarcane, for those of you who didn't know. Um, and second, the oil and gas industry has had so much power over Washington for so long, um, other than the person I told at lunch. Um, can anybody guess what the first year was when there was a government subsidy for the fossil fuel industry, for the oil and gas industry in the United States? A little late, 1916. Um, And then in real terms, I I, I tried to get an absolute specific and I couldn't, this is all very shielded, um, but these taxpayer advocacy groups um, estimate between one and five billion dollars in 2009 terms have been dedicated to the oil and gas industry. it's, 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 it's it's just no no mystery why we're all driving around cars that are better, you know that are that are fueled with fossil fuel. There's there have been it's not just the market mispricing. There have been huge subsidies that have made us all overly dependent on fossil fuels, and because of that overdependence, the fact that we have realized it, the fact that we have now a government, and I'm I'm an Obama fan even though I used to be a Republican and I'm not a Democrat yet. Um, <laughs> we've got a government that is finally willing to to, um, to fess up and, and say we 've got to have an energy plan and we 've got to have an, the, other, the second thing I was going to talk about in terms of market markets and economic forces is the volatility of oil prices because before now When's the last time we had a comprehensive energy plan? The last time we had an energy crisis, which was the 1970s. So whenever, every time we've had low supply or high prices, everyone's gone, oh, my God, we can't continue to fuel all of these vehicles. We can't continue to live a lifestyle, and not just the vehicles, and the manufacturing, and the agriculture, and our whole society, because vehicles are actually a small part of it, um, that, that is that is so dependent on fossil fuels. And now we have a real appetite in this country because of all of these factors to really develop a comprehensive a comprehensive plan, um, but it's interesting, again, oil prices played a role. When was there all of this infusion of capital into basically biofuel and solar? It was mid last year, and what was the oil price mid last year? $147. It is only because, and why I'm going through all of these factors, it's only because we have all of these factors at play all at the same time that we're still moving forward on clean tech. Otherwise, one of the things that is key for anybody in the renewable energy um, industry is called the levelized cost of energy. And you will read in the New York Times and everywhere else, everyone tries to come up with numbers. Um, And if you actually, because I'm a geek enough that I have, you drill down and create matrices that try to really value and and cost the infrastructure and everything else that goes into it. It's it's incredibly complex. Um, And I don't think anyone has it quite right yet even pv prices are falling significantly which is great but my point is with energy whatever the price of oil that you know that that's, or 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 even coal that's that's kind of your baseline you've got to get renewable energy at some point whether it's through subsidies or feed-in tariff or whatever to sort of to, to equalize out so that there are market pressures to start in addition to regulation to start reinforcing the renewable energy industry so volatility of oil prices another one that has been fascinating to me looking at this whole debate as of two years ago, nobody would have guessed that this clean tech revolution would be viewed as one of the solutions to the current economic crisis. It is really viewed as a job creator. but if you look at the numbers and the two I just quickly looked at before I came, you take a two, one even a one megawatt wind facility it represents about three thousand manufacturing jobs and about a thousand installation jobs. If you take um, a CSP, concentrated solar thermal plant, that, that BrightSource in Oakland is trying to, to, to build. You've also got several thousand construction jobs, and they estimate between three and 500 ongoing operating jobs. So it is, and that's just kind of one small segment of the market. It can be a job creation, a wealth creation, and, and there's the need for infrastructure, which I'll go in, into later. Um, so the third major factor that is driving this this, this clean tech, um, all of the investment and interest in clean tech, is really regulation. Um, and we've started with regulation on energy. Um, we've moved to now regulation in the United States around carbon. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about those. I mean, it was the Emergency Stabilization Act of 2008 that extended out the investment tax credit. Um, and the production tax credit by eight and three years, respectively, which was great until companies had so large losses that they couldn't use the tax credits and so actually then a whole bunch of renewable energy companies went to Washington and negotiated for actual cash rebates and cash grants for the Department of Energy in lieu of the credits because credits don't do a lot of people a lot of good right now they're not acting as a stimulus any rate that's part of it you've all heard of the stimulus package the American recovery and reinvestment act of 2009 a lot of money in there for clean tech that is dedicated to clean tech There's $11 billion for the smart grid, $4.5 billion for energy efficiency in federal um, buildings, $2 billion for grants to advance batteries for electric vehicles, um, $8.4 billion for mass transit, um, $20 billion um, in incentives and other rebates for renewable energy. Um, And then you have what's on the table right now, which is fascinating, this ACES, the American Clean Energy and Security Act. I mean, it's fascinating to me that they actually had enough political clout to put all of this together. They have one comprehensive bill, which is trying to deal with everything at the same time. And it will be very interesting to see what's in it. It's dealing with everything from energy efficiency to clean fuel and vehicles to trying to adopt a national RPS standard, Um, RPS, Renewable Portfolio Standard. Um, There are 28 states right now that have RPS standards. RPS is another sort of regulatory um, device that is driving a lot of the investment and innovation in clean tech, um, because it requires utilities, PG&E, SEMPRA, Southern Cal Edison, to buy a certain percentage of their energy from renewable energy sources. Um, and so having a national RPS again furthers that. A very interesting thing that's going on right now, and there are, I could digress on any of these topics if you wanted me to because I just find it all really fascinating. But what's going on right now is that almost all of these, so these utilities have these RPS standards they have to meet. None of them are close to meeting them. So they've been running around signing contracts with as many renewable energy companies as they can. Those renewable energy companies and contracts, a lot of them were signed before the crisis. Remember, Bear Stearns happened in August of last year. This crisis is I, I, you kind of, it becomes part of your consciousness, but it hasn't been going on for that long. And they were banking on getting... You know, millions and in cases when you're talking about utility scale you're talking about billions of dollars of financing to build out these big utilities utility scale fields whether it's pv or solar or the plants in the in the case of biofuel or the the fields for wind and um you know they're not going to be able to get the financing absent government money right now to be able to build them out um, and so there's a lot of renegotiation of those contracts that, that is going on. And that is fueling a lot of the debate. And a lot of the debate right now over ACES in Washington is over this RPS standard. Um, but the, 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 the ACES, we're calling it ACES, the American Clean Energy and Security Act, also has, has the carbon, has cap and trade, has significant regulation of, it's about the 13,000 largest and heaviest emitters. And it really could be, again, a game changer all of this will drive a lot more innovation because it will drive more people who are investing heavily in developing new technologies in all of these industries. The interesting, I had had two very interesting conversations in the last couple weeks, um, and I didn't realize this was going to be on TV, so I'm actually not going to not going to name either of the companies because I was talking, I was talking to the number three at one of the country's largest um, energy producers. and it's an energy producer that is not here in California, and it's an energy producer that <laughs> that relies heavily on coal, and, and in fact, until recently had a coal plant in the wor- a new coal plant in the works that they scrapped. And I, have, for other reasons, have become fascinated with carbon sequestration and tootle out to Lawrence Livermore to chat because I just I, I think it is it, it it is a real option, and I think it's one of the only real solutions to the carbon problem. And so I, was, I used the opportunity not just to pitch for his work, but to really grill him on whether or not carbon sequestration was going to be a viable alternative, given their dependence on coal. And he said, no, it was too expensive. And we went through the metrics of why and how, how you could get it to cost comparability. It all involves a whole lot of government money. Um, but the interesting thing he said is, 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 and I am not an environmental regulatory lawyer, which is, I, I usually go to all of my clients with an environmental and an energy regulatory lawyer because it's so critical to this industry. Um, but he, I said, so so, what would get you to stop relying on coal? And he went through two or three other substances that apparently coal plants emit that I don't know and had never heard of. And then I remember he got to mercury and he said, by the time they start start regulating mercury, we're going to stop relying on coal. And it, what was interesting to me was all the other things before mercury, but also the fact that he, the current regulatory framework was, people are seeing it as just the beginning. You know, we're starting to regulate carbon. We're also going to start to regulate all of these other externalities that, back to the market forces, have not been properly priced in. And that people are thinking ahead. The other example was just last week. I was talking to the in house corporate council of one of the largest software companies. Um, it yet is based in California. Um, and they do software and hardware. And again, they didn't really care about carbon, they're not a heavy emitter. Um, and we got all the way down, and I said, so, so why – this is one of the first company that voluntarily disclosed a lot of the impacts on emissions and climate change. And I'm like, so yeah, I've been watching what you're doing. Why? And he said, we're actually really worried about the regulation of PFCs from computers. And again, it's not – what we currently have is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. And I think we've had Buzz Thompson, who I, I teach with down at Stanford, explains that it's been a really long time before we've had this kind of shakeup in the environmental regulatory community. And now it's just it's a whole new world. What, you know, what, what's on the table to be regulated? And so everybody is changing their behavior, developing new technologies, financing them um, because of this. And I've been digressing, so I'm going to try to keep going. Um, <laughs> Okay. Other other thing I wanted to say, regulatory front is just it's not just the national. All of you probably know there's been a lot of state and regional in California. There's been AB 32. Um, there's also the Western Climate Initiative in the in the the uh, the northeastern part of the United States. There has been Reggie. There's been a lot of initiative to develop regulation for carbon, other greenhouse gases, on the state and local level. And one of the interesting things, again, from a legal perspective, will be the integration of the state and the regional framework um, with the rest of the framework. But I wanted to get the fourth driver right now um, in cleantech, which is really intellectual property. Um, And for those of you who are in this industry or thinking about getting into this industry... IP is king as it has never been before. So we were just getting the stats, and I don't have them for 2009, but between 25,000 and 40,000 patents were filed in each of the two, last two years in clean tech. That blows away, that's several times more than the height of life sciences or tech. And so the question is, why? Well, first of all, there's just a lot of activity. Um, but I actually went to Mike Ward, who is a UC Davis. PhD, and he's on this on this sort of steering committee, this group at the firm, and all we do is clean tech, and we work together. We're very cross disciplinary. We have an IP lawyer, and an energy lawyer, an environmental lawyer, um, and and he is an IP patent lawyer, and we really all have to work together to give the clients the advice that they need in this space. Um, and he said it's a, it's a it's a bunch of different factors. First, he said a lot of the technologies in clean tech. Um, you have to have knowledge of, of a lot of different areas of science and technology. And so people come together and they're really creating things that are, at, in the one hand, new and novel. But on the other hand, the patent, and the, the patent office and IP doesn't distinguish between sort of a product that has environmentally good things versus just a normal product. So you could have, you know, two different companies going for patents in exactly the same space. Uh, without even realizing it. He also said that especially with carbon, but in other spaces as well, they're just companies in all different industries that are doing exactly the same thing. And the easy example is carbon because we have looked at carbon patents in almost exactly the same space for a financial services company, an investment bank, a software company that has a network, an agricultural company that has a product that reduces carbon, and that's not even counting a little carbon footprinting via verifier over here. They've all filed patents doing almost exactly the same thing in the same space. So one of the things we do at MoFo is I don't, but we do litigate. And so there is a reason why we have a dedicated group of IP litigators, because we know it's going to come, because there has just been an incredible uh, amount of overlap. Um, So the next thing I'm just going to quickly review is kind of what's hot in cleantech today, what's kind of going on in the market. Um, It's not that dissimilar from 2008. All of these factors that came into play drove a real investment in solar, in biofuels, and in wind. Um, I would argue that the one factor I I didn't mention um, is the fact that uh, typically, how many investors are there in this room? Well, typically, investors like to invest in things that they know and understand. So it is, to me, a solar company looks more like a semiconductor company. A biofuel company looks more like a life sciences company. Those were the first two off the bat. First, they were in a renewable energy space. Again, you had RPS standards. You had a lot of regulatory mechanism that drove a demand. But you also had technologies that the investment world generally understood. And so they started pouring more and more money. And... Uh, that sector, those three sectors alone, you know, e- 2007 to 2008, 2006 to 2007 grew at close to 100%. 2007 to 2008 grew at 58, 53%. And even for the first quarter of 2009, there has been significant investment in those three sectors. In solar, there's been an emphasis in the past in PV, which is photovoltaic. There has been an increased emphasis and investment in what is called CSP, which is Concentrated Solar Thermal. And I get very excited about that, but I won't go into it. Um, Biofuels, something that I know has been being, being developed a lot at UC Davis. Um, you've moved from what's called first-generation biofuel, which is your corn-based ethanol, again, the same, basically the same stuff that drove the, mo- the first Model T, to a cellulosic ethanol, to a lot of the things, again, that are being worked on in Davis and other places, which is algae-based, sort of really growing your fuel in a box. Um, and then being able to market and sell it, which is very exciting. In fact, algae-based biofuel... Um, was the hottest sector of, of VC clean tech investment at the last quarter of 2008, which I found very interesting. And back to the, the UC Davis graduate that I work with, Mike Ward, I mean, he was a plant guy. He's always, he got his PhD and he did all this stuff with plants here. He gets excited about plants. He and I had really never had a lot of intersection. He was a really nice guy, but now we work very closely together because plants are a key source of energy and a key source of a lot of the solutions in there. So other things that are hot in clean tech today... Smart grid, which I'm not going to give a fair due today. You know, just the fact that 50% of your energy is lost um, from the time that it leaves the production to the time that it actually reaches the outlet. Um, and the fact that there is a very old grid that needs a lot of work. How and what kind of work is, is o- open to debate. Um, but one of the issues is you now have, before you had pg and you had all these utilities who would build their power plants close to the grid so that they could connect to the grid. Now you got the same grid, but you've got a renewable energy company that's got sun shining in Arizona or in the Mojave Desert, and they're ages away from the grid. So how do you, and you've got a lot of environmental groups that have an interest in all the land between the Mojave Desert and the grid. And so how do you how do you connect? There are a lot of infrastructure issues and a lot of investment there. Interestingly... Last summer, I would have said that green building was not on my radar, um, that because of the real estate bubble, real estate prices, and there was going to be very little interest or investment in green building. And I was wrong for two reasons. Number one, energy efficiency being a huge um, energy, but also a uh, money saver and also being such and a a, a a focus of the federal government but also the municipalities if they're not now a lot of the municipalities now or in the future will be requiring green building and so we're actually seeing a lot of investment and innovation in green building technologies water i mentioned earlier um, desalinization but also drip technology um, and all kinds of other weather treatments taking the bad stuff out of water so it can be reused um, and finally, back to carbon. I talked about you know, all the new carbon technologies around tracking and verifying, but also sequestration. Um, we're starting to see more and more focus in that area. So back to what I said at the beginning of my talk that cleantech was not a valley play. I, would just, I thought I would just sort of take you around the world in three minutes or less um, and, and tell you kind of what's going on in the rest of the world. You know, just, just sort of a spot check. Um, Brazil... Biofuels, last year, more of the energy was produced with renewable and alternative energy sources in Brazil than fossil fuels. That's kind of exciting and it's coming out of Brazil. Um, they've, they're also investing heavily in, in thermoelectric plants, which I found very interesting. Europe, you've got Spain, and you've got Germany as the leaders. A lot of that has been done with government subsidies. But even if you look at some of the larger players that are entering the California market, Abengoa, they're Spanish companies. And I, I can't remember a time in the tech boom or the life sciences where Spanish companies came in force into California and really were a, a competitive threat. Maybe I'm wrong, but... To all the Spaniards out there, I apologize. Um, so the UK, Israel, I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of really interesting both water technology and, um, and solar technology coming out of Israel. The United Arab Emirates, new technology, but they're also huge purchasers um, in a way that I didn't expect in, in terms of particularly energy efficiency and green building. Um, China is devoting an incredible amount of money to water treatment and solar. They just announced, I think it was 10 days ago, a whole initiative with with significant government subsidies. Um, They have a stimulus plan very similar to our stimulus plan that has, you know, again into the billions, and I have the numbers elsewhere but I probably won't get to them, you know, for investment in renewable energy, particularly solar and specifically water treatment. Um, Japan, again, all of your large companies in Japan have been for quite a while refocusing. They don't call it clean tech, but in fact you know, Sharp is now <laughs> manufacturing panels. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's an obvious sort of next step. And can anybody guess what is going to be the fastest growing market for providing and receiving solar in the next two years? This is predicted by, I think, CleanEdge and Cleantech Network. No, no, uh, country. I'm in. I'm oh, oh, country. country? South Korea. Who knew? South Korea is going to be big in solar, so that's something to watch. Who's funding clean tech, um, finally? Again, it's just a totally different world now than it was um, even six months or a year ago. primary source of funding right now for clean tech, federal governments. Um, interesting fact that the, G8, the, sorry, the G20 just met. Um, and there's about $26 trillion in the G8 for stimulus packages. Of that $400 billion, this is the, just the G20, um, has been earmarked and is going to be dedicated for renewable energy, improved electrical grids, and cleaner cars. And the U.S., little known fact, there was a Bush Renewable Energy Program with loans and guarantees um, that actually was, although, although it wasn't funded, it was, it was, it was, it was quite robust. The interesting thing to me is in, when, when, when companies started applying, and there are some companies, actually the first five um, of those loans are right now in process, and, and we're working on two of those. Um, the first applications that came were about a year and a year and a half ago by a lot of the hottest renewable energy companies. None of them applied for the loans. They all applied for the guarantees because money was so much cheaper. All of those companies and everybody else is now obviously applying for the money because... That's one of the biggest sources of funding, and for those of you who are not in the clean tech sector, um, well, I'll venture capital is still there. Um, again, you had it's tapered off a little bit the last two quarters. You had about 2.5 billion in VC investment for the quarter last quarter of two, of, of last year, and the lowest it's been quite a while, in quite a while. There's only one billion in VC. Funding for clean tech in the first quarter of 2009. Again, it still blows away all. Of the <laughs> I mean, it's gone down a lot less than all of the other sectors um, because there still has been a considerable investment. If you ask sort of new funds that are being set up, and and you know, if you look what, where a lot of the investments are going right now, they are going into the sectors that I mentioned before um, in clean tech. But venture venture is not venture is great for you know, an energy efficiency product. Venture might be good for a small sort of development algae biofuel company. Venture is not good for concentrated solar thermal where you need a billion dollars to build out a utility scale several um, gigawatt plant. Maybe they could finance a couple... Megawatts, if I'm getting my watts right, gigawatt or two, it just takes way, way too much money, and venture is not, it is not primed for it. And so, again, government the other person that's, the other the group of entities that has sort of fallen into this mix of providing funding are, are public companies. Um, Chevron here, but Chevron also set up a joint venture with Weyerhaeuser um, and is investing billions in renewable energy. Um, BP, another project that we're working full disclosure, we're representing that entity. Um, BP has a $500 million project with the University of Berkeley, um, again, uh, funding renewable energy. Um, and so, the Fortune 1000 not only developing, but also starting to, to get into the mix of funding. And an interesting sidelight that will also come out of the new federal legislation is utilities. They are, rest- they are loosening the restrictions on utilities. So before PG&E could only enter into what are called PPAs, or power purchase agreements, to buy in, they're going to be able to start – PG&E and the utilities are going to start being able to take advantage of this federal credits and stimulus, and so they're actually going to be allowed – to invest in, and they will start probably building out their own capacity and their own renewable energy plants. So that's kind of exciting as well. Um, So in conclusion, um, cleantech's kind of cool. (laughs) Um, I was just just thinking of what I was gonna say. I mean, there's just been a lot of federal money allocated um, to the cleantech sector, Um, a lot of regulation. The fact I have, there was a Deutsche Bank report that came out last month that said, 250 law internationally, 250 laws and regulations between July 2008 and February 2009 on climate change alone. So you take climate change and energy, and you've got double that. So just you have a totally new regulatory structure. Um, you've got a lot of federal funding. You've got a lot of regulation to come in other areas. You've probably got cap and trade at some point. I would say at this point, it's looking like it's 2010, and all of that means you have a lot of innovation. And the one good thing that has happened, that at least we are seeing happen as a result of the current downturn, is you have some really smart people who have time. And really smart people who have time get really innovative. And when they see, and they can kind of put off, and they see it's not too far away, it's a year or two years that if they start working on this really new plant, cool new plant, or uh, this new solution to electric grid infrastructure, there are going to be possibilities and there's going to be funding to buy it. And so people are, are not really, in other sectors, I really think, you know, people are sort of holding tight just to survive um, until next year when we're start expecting some recovery. And clean tech, we're not seeing that. We're seeing a lot of innovation and growth, which is very exciting. So, did I stay on time? I don't know. I, I, I tend to go off. Uh, do you have questions on anything? Any questions? I have a question. Okay. <laughs> you
0: talked you talk about cap and trade. Is um,
1: the idea of, uh,
0: of carbon tax dead or and is that a good thing or not? What, what would spur the most innovation?
1: That's a really good question. If my environmental regulatory lawyer were here, I would punt to him. I've always been anti-tax, but as I delve more into cap and trade, sort of looking at what the EU ETS, all of the issues with that. Um, I mean, it's everything from getting the caps right um, to whether or not you sell or give away the allowances to then you have these commodities that are trading and you have no way to account for them. I just see a a several year process, even if we have cap and trade next year, of really being maybe, maybe more than several year process of working out all the kinks in the system. And, you know, if you, be, you know, believe Obama, he came out early on and it said he expected cap and trade to, eight, you know, to raise $800 billion. Well, where do you think that $800 billion is going to come from? The heavy emitters, the large manufacturing and utilities and all the large corporations. So if that's going to happen, why not get simpler and just tax? Um, so I don't think taxes, and I've heard in Washington, taxes is not dead. Um, and the only issue I have... About what's going on in Washington, a lot of people have is they're trying to tackle so many things at the same time. Um, if you just take even you know, one of these small issues and really think through, and even though I'm a lawyer, I mean, the goal should be to avoid litigation. The void should be not to set up a system that makes a whole bunch of lawyers like Sarbanes, you know, money for the lawyers and the accountants like Sarbanes Oxley did. And I, I, see, I, I see this going in that direction, which just seems to me a huge waste of money. Well, your country and your <laughs> your, <laughs> your state. Um, uh, with I, I'm a, just a general corporate lawyer, so this is I'm not a technology or an IP lawyer. But um, with that caveat, I get excited about CSP. So I've learned a little bit about the technology. Um, and CSP is when you, you take you, you you take mirrors and you concentrate the rays in um, And you use a combination of mirrors, and apparently there are three different technologies. There is a tower technology, a trough technology, and something called or Fresnel technology, and they're all different ways of really concentrating the sun's rays. And then the sun's rays are concentrated and then directed towards a fluid, and typically it's an oil, and then that fluid goes and and spins a turbine. One of the reasons I get so excited about CSP is one of the sort of dark little secrets about renewable energy is you have a real storage issue. You have a real issue when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. And so a lot of these large wind farms that you see are actually coupled with fossil fuel generating facilities. You, you, you can't decouple that. And CSP has some of the companies, like BrightSource, who I love, um, have, have solved at least partially the storage problem. I don't fully understand how that you need scientists, not me, to explain how they've done that. Um, so, but they have. So that's, that's sort of the idea. But you have huge, vast fields um, that capture the sun rays and then mirror and um, different companies that are doing it in the Bay Area. Ozra, they, they use the trough technology. um, Next Light, um Energy actually is, is technology agnostic, but they're doing a lot of the build-out of the utility scale. BrightSource, which has the tower tech... Oh, sorry, Osra is frecknell, sorry. Goa is here from Spain. They do the trough, and Bright Source um, does the tower technology. And it's, I mean, one of the things that people talk about in some of these areas is that there's a technology risk. But as I mentioned, there are a whole bunch of plants that are now owned by Florida Power and Light that were built by the original Luz company back in the 70s that are CSP. They're operating right now and doing very well. And so this is a proven technology. It's an alternative to PV, and I get kind of excited about it.